it's just too much time is wasted. You know, it can be wasted either in the, uh, the design of the experiment, it can be wasted in launching and running the experiment, it can be wasted in the analysis. That's a very common place, you know. Welcome to Marketing Unfuck, the only podcast that helps you unfuck your marketing by hosting conversations with all the badasses in this industry. We're your hosts, Siobhan and Russell, and today we're joined by Craig Sullivan. He's going to be discussing from optimizing plants to optimizing websites for performance. Let's do it. I have to say the last time the three of us were in a room together was probably unknowingly, right? When was that? CXL Estonia 2016. 17. Yeah, because they, can, they cancelled it this year. Not enough people were going to go. They were going to do it in August. Oh, they cancelled it? Yeah, it got cancelled. It's a bummer. Oh, that's too bad. I'd done that all the music for it as well. I, I DJ. I do all oh, the music Oh, those are the there. best set lists. <laughs> <laughs> this is what we need to have, a DJ session on the show. <laughs> yeah, more, yeah, more, more DJ in it. On FM as well. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh, that's too bad that they shut down. That's the interesting thing. If you actually talk to a lot of CRO or experimentation people, they usually have quite interesting creative hobbies, right? You know, so they do some low-tech things or they do something very creative and very different from their work. There actually quite a lot of DJs around or wannabe DJs, right? And there are, are some good ones. I'm not one of the best ones or some that are awesome, like Ton Wesseling, right? He's... Uh, He's an Never awesome heard him DJ. DJ. <laughs> yeah, he's actually cut his teeth doing vinyl techno DJing, right? And uh, yeah, I've seen him line up a couple of records. Yeah, I'm thinking, yeah, I, I will never get that good, right? So he's, yeah, he's really good. I'm good at picking music, right? Um, not bad at mixing, getting better, right? And uh, so it improves over time, but the, the ability to hunt out and find good music has never lost me. So that that's a good thing. Yeah, I do realize a lot of them are, a lot of us rather, have different hobbies. I think you garden too, don't you? I do. I've got a large garden, grow a lot of food and flowers and stuff like that. You know, it's a nice antidote to work, right? (laughs) (laughs) It's natural, it's organic, there are no numbers. And I'm not controlling it, right? With my garden, I'm sort of the custodian. I look after it, right, for the benefit of the ecosystem right so it's it's chock full the garden of hoverflies and ladybirds mm. and you know so many different species of wasp and honeybee because it's stuff full of flowers that they like so it's it's its own little system i kind of help look after it right i'm like the janitor but i'm not a lot of people think they own their gardens no you're just looking after that little space of land right you're just the it's interesting that it's still process driven though isn't it it's your it's a similar brain it's quite process driven is if you do this and you follow this procedure then you may get this outcome <laughs> yeah but uh, all, it's all, very similar to zero all, i also a lot of it. all the time and my tomatoes are not showing up i'm just gonna say <laughs> there's the the i posted some videos i'll send them to you on how to get AB tested the a tomato plant training method, right? Because uh, I read, I'd listened to a, a program where a guy called Bob Flowerdew was explaining that the little side shoots on tomato plants that come out at 45 degrees from the main stem, these actually grow faster, right? 
than the main stem itself, right? And there's a reason for this because when tomatoes kind of are more crawling plants, they don't grow mm. up canes in real life, right? They kind um. of clamber over things and rocks and stuff and get sun, right? So what happens if an animal breaks off a bit of the stem? Well, it's got to kind of cover for that breakage, right? So the bits that are left over when it breaks grow twice as fast to fill the hole, right? And so it's an evolutionary genetic algorithm that's coded into the plant. But you can take advantage of it. So I thought, well, so what he had done was instead of letting the main, the main kind of root, uh, main leader be the tomato plant, he promoted the side shoot, right? He cut this one off and promoted the 45 degree one to be in the main plant, right? Okay, interesting. So I did a mosaic pattern experiment, right, where I took 40 tomato plants, 20 of which were trained standard way, 20 of which were trained this way, and I put <laughs> them in a mosaic pattern, right, so that the soil wasn't a confounding factor in the experiment. And then I ran the experiment, right, and I weighed the plants and measured them at the end. And the ones trained the new way had 40% taller plants, right, in the same time period, and 60% greater yield of tomatoes off of them in weight. And they were all watered the same way, right? And fed the same way. So it's like, yeah, you could even do A-B testing and gardening, <laughs> sad to say. Yeah, so I literally collected all the data, you know. I do the same thing with... In- what, what was that guy's name again, Craig? Because it sounded like nominative, nominative determinism. Yeah, um, uh, Bob Flowerdew. That's uh, but he also ran some experiments just, where he, he he promoted he put two he made two leaders using these shoots and three and he found that three wasn't three times better two was ideal so you if you've got space between tomato plants you can actually grow two main tomato trellises out of one stem and you will actually get more yield than planting the same density of tomatoes with a single stem right. So yeah, it's all it's all about maximizing yields from the same amount of inputs, right? I just uh yeah, I love testing stuff. Yeah, <laughs> I said like Beavis and Butthead, I love testing stuff. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Test stuff. Blow things up. I, I don't think there's any need for Craig to do an introduction on a podcast. <laughs> he can just tell that story <laughs> and that is basically Craig in a nutshell is I like testing stuff. <laughs> Topic non-inclusive. But there's an interesting problem which I was thinking about before today, which is that if we made a graph of the distribution, right, of volume of tests that were being run, right, so not mm-hmm. a month, one a month, two a month, all the way up to like thousands, right, we plotted all the companies in the world on there that are running experiments, right, what we'd find is we'd find a spike on the left, right, and a spike on the right, and then we'd find uh, not not a flat middle, but a middle full of people doing a small amount of tests, right? And there will also be a skew in tool usage. At the left-hand spike where people, there's a lot of people doing very small amount of tests, like less than one a month, right? They'll probably be using a free tool or a very cheap entry-level tool, right? At the other extremes, right, companies who are running thousands of experiments a day, right, they'll probably be using their own tooling, right? Or they might be using, you know, uh, not at the extreme end of that scale, but maybe the top end of the middle bit, they might be using, say, a tool from Optimizely or something like that. But the problem is there's a huge chunk of people in the middle there 
who are not really running enough experiments, right? And it's the magic of compounding interest, right? You know, if all you're doing is running five experiments a month, right? And one of them wins and it's like a half percent lift, right? Over 12 months, that's not going to really get you very far, right? You've shifted a little bit. You've got a bit more revenue. But is it paying for the cost of the experimentation program? No, it bloody isn't, right? So you're simply not doing enough tests to have a material effect on your your product position or your competitive position in the market, right? What is the point of doing the tests if they can't have that transformative effect, right? So a lot of people are in what I call the stuck middle, right? Where they're doing experimentation, but they're simply not doing enough volume to have a material effect. And certainly not if their competitors are running three, four, five, or 10 times the number of experiments in the same period, right? Because the interesting effect that people don't talk about here is that the more you experiment, the less you make stupid mistakes when you ship stuff and just hope it works, right? Because that largely doesn't work, right? I've found of all the stuff I've shipped, right, a lot of it doesn't work, right? A lot of it doesn't make any difference. Some of it's even harmful, right? But nobody ever really knows. So they just keep shipping more stuff, right? And the cost of that is a big drag on an organization. It's the sunk cost fallacy, right? So people are missing out that it's not about the lifts and the tests. It's the fact that you're making way less really stupid decisions and shipping way less stuff that is not going to work, that people don't want, that doesn't shift the needle, that you should forget about investing in further, or you need to go down another angle. But knowing that actually makes your dev budget more productive, right? So if 90% of what you're doing in dev time is just shipping stuff, then that means probably, even if I was being bloody charitable, half of that is bound to be not working. It's probably more like 80%. So that means the 80% of 90% of all the effort you do is rubbish and doesn't do anything for anyone, right? But imagine if you, and, and 90%... A lot of people, a lot yeah. of people don't... Uh, and oh, if, sorry. But if 90% of what you were doing was actually testing stuff and then deciding whether it should be shipped or not to production then you would be avoiding that wastage entirely. And you would not also be putting things on your site that actively are harmful and would reduce revenue or conversion rate. So you, you've got the loss avoidance factor as well as the gains. I mean, it's, it's, it has a multiplicative effect, right? Sorry, you were saying? I, th- I think a lot of people, yeah, yeah, I think a, a lot of people don't do a lot of tests because either they don't know what they should be testing yeah. or... They go in with a hypothesis that they, they think that they have to have a correct hypothesis before they start a test. And like Siobhan, we've spoken about this quite a bit, uh, is that it, people are scared of doing tests in case they fail, yeah. but people don't realize that a failed test actually tells you, if anything, more exactly. than a successful test. to it right it's just simply a test that didn't go the way that you hoped right it's a bit like life right we all i remember once i read in a book and a guy was out drinking with another guy he said to the guy he said oh i really wish things had worked out with jane and the other guy says to him yeah they did but just not the way that you wanted them to (laughs) right (laughs) and it's true like this right I just don't have that personal investment in experiments anymore. I'm thinking about the tooling and the reliability. I'm not wondering, oh, I really hope that that thing works. It's just like, do you know what? The coin is going to fall where the coin falls, right? My job is to make sure that that 
you know, that test reliable as a result is a reliable read, right? And my job is not to get personally invested in, in the test. I might have an opinion about stuff. It's not unheard of for that to happen, but I don't get emotionally <laughs> invested in them to the point where I feel upset when the when the stupid users didn't choose my wonderful design, you know? I've had all that but ego knocked out of it, me. Yeah, but I think part of it is also, I mean, it's just laziness, isn't it? Because a failed test means you need to now understand why that test didn't work and what you can learn from that and then build on that. And that's the part that people are afraid of. It's not failure, yes. It's really a good, Cassie from Google has a very good article. It's called Never Start with a Hypothesis, right? And it's very interesting because it, it explains the role of the hypothesis in testing, but also explains what a null hypothesis test is. What a null hypothesis test is, is you're sitting in a chair and you're saying, the thing I've got is perfectly fine. Convince me change my mind. It's like one of those memes where you've got the guy sitting at the table saying, yeah, I think X, change my mind, right? Challenge me. And that's what it is. Most people think it's, oh, we put this in and this is supposed to be the winner and we're hoping for it to win. No, it's not that. What you're saying is, make me change from my default, which should be to stick with what I've already got, right? So you're not looking for a winner. You're looking for strong evidence that you should actually change from the shit that you're doing right now, right? And that's a different way of thinking. And a lot of people just don't fundamentally grasp that, right? And that's what a null hypothesis is based on, right? If you don't get that, then you're you're just looking at... So failure isn't a failure. It just says, no, you should stick with what you got. Otherwise, you'll make it worse, right? I mean, that's not a failure. That's called a save. You're like, gasp, I've just saved the ball in the corner of the goal with a massive leap, right? That's what I call a yeah. save because you've saved yourself the harm of implementing that stupid thing, right? It's not bad at all, right? Just got to get it. And this is one of the things that suffuses leadership. They go, uh, a lot of people that I've met say, oh, we tolerate failure. We love innovation and failure, right? But in reality, they don't promote it. They don't tolerate it and they don't encourage a culture of failure because you run that marketing campaign you, uh, and, and it didn't work. You've got it wrong, right? It's not that you're thinking, but that just shows that the thing we're doing now is really good, right? <laughs> it's like you failed and it's you've got to turn this around and, and think about it the wrong way. It just didn't go the way you want. You know, all of the thousands of drugs that we've tried on people with COVID, right? Uh, and, and some we had to do very, very quickly and trial out on a kind of random basis, which is not always the best way to do science, but they also found some that worked, right? And that worked really well, right? But if you weren't measuring that and running that in a scientifically controlled way, you'd never be able to figure that kind of stuff out. Right? So lots of, lots of people are just uh, and, not uh, doing it's the concept of, enough tests. It's the concept of status quo, isn't it? Is like people think that something is performing at the best it could. so the only option is for the next thing to perform better than the current status quo. And the way that like we talk about data and, and we I mentioned this on on a podcast with Siobhan recently is like making less shit decisions is actually a much better way of looking at this than always going for perfection. Experimentation yeah. out tests, right? 
It's not about A-B tests. Yeah. It's not about multi-arm bandits, right? It's not about statistical significance, right? It's about making confident business decisions faster, right? That's it, right? So to yeah. be able to say, what shall we do, Craig? You should implement that. You should keep what you've got. Those are the kind of decisions I'm talking about. The branching business logic, we ran an experiment, we found out some stuff, it in- increases lifetime value hugely. What are we going to do? We're going to implement it, right? You know, it's just like, yeah. so what What experimentation does is become decision support. It becomes your wingman, right? The thing that is going to stop you from making stupid decisions and back you up, right? So it's better than hunch, right? Hunch still plays a part. You still have to make bets and take leaps of faith when you're running a business, right? But if that's augmented by knowledge and data and experimentation, then you're going to make much more confident and sounder decisions. And the quality of your decisions is going to go up, not just the volume, right? Because think about what takes the place of experimentation right now. It's ego and fear of failure. Ego thinking, I know best, my idea's best, the stuff I've designed is going to win. I can tell you all now, if you have thoughts like that, like my stuff is going to win, I'm really good at this stuff, I, I know what people like, I know what customers want, I know what will work, then you're going to be uh, heartbroken at some point. Well, I think that part of that problem is though that, you know, A-B testing has become a thing and it's also got lumped into the growth marketing section. <laughs> and I think that's part of the problem, right? That everyone thinks that testing is experimentation, which we already know is not. And then they think it's always supposed to provide growth. But there's a, the, yeah, there's an you, interesting conversation about this because I, I once used a set of slides and showed them to a startup and I had a picture of an amoeba and a bicycle. And I said, amoebas can't ride bicycles, right? They looked at me really strangely. And I said, the reason is, is because amoebas haven't had millions of years of evolution in order to grow effing arms and legs in order to ride the bicycle. You are a startup. You're just not big enough to run tens of thousands of control A-B tests, right? And the only way you're ever going to evolve to the point where you do have enough traffic to run those A-B tests is if you actually have that evolution and don't die, right? The A-B tests are not the intrinsic thing that's going to power your growth, right? It's product market fit, right? It's the early qualitative data and insight that you get from customers. It's those rapid and iterative feedback loops, quant and qual data, right? You probably, you know, running A-B tests is not a strategy for a startup, right? It's something that should be on your horizon when you reach the level where you have significant enough traffic to use it effectively as a tool. There are some tweaks that you can make and techniques that you can use to reduce the need for, reduce the size of the sample that you'll need, but there's all, uh, there's swings and roundabouts with that. It means less confident decision-making at the end of the day. And to be honest with you, there's almost a hard limit, which is, you should not really bother with A-B testing if your volumes of KPI outcomes to customers is over a certain amount. And it varies for every company. Some people might get lots of traffic, but virtually no conversion. Some might get 50% conversion mm-hmm. rate. And the statistics around that and the metrics that you pick are going to have an influence on in how that all works. But yes, there will be a point at which you can run A-B testing, 
But A-B testing is not the thing that gets you as a startup to that point, right? It, it becomes a qualitative versus, versus quantitative gain there because I think there's a lot of startups that see testing, but actually what they want is an opinion-based outcome. So they've got their main messaging or things like that, which is fine. Uh, there was a good Gusto article recently that showed how they used a combination of I think it was Usability Hub they used, but they had some preference tests to see what people like preferred and then ran some experiments around that, like small-scale experiments, and that was good enough to make a call on that product feature. So I'm all about mm-hmm. blending call and quant. You know, I also believe that for user experience, people need to get with quant data as well, right? As well as mm-hmm. people who are entirely quantitative focused like experimenters need to get with qualitative research, right? Because they'll get better yeah. quality of ideas coming through, right? Rather than just some random crap, right? You were talking about hypotheses earlier on. You should have a hypothesis for a test because it's your expression of the critical thinking about how the experiment has been designed to uncover useful additional information right and if the experiment you're running is not going to uncover useful and additional information then writing down the hypothesis will usually kind of surface that i used to i've got a hypothesis kit and if people can't write their experiment into that fill in the blanks without making me laugh then it's never going to run as a test right and and so Actually, asking people to write this stuff down, it's not a, a way of making them make a hypothesis. It's a way of making them think about how they are, what they're measuring, why they're measuring it, where the evidence comes from, what the reason is behind the experiment, what they're hoping to uncover, what additional information might be gained, and how widely transmissible and useful that piece of knowledge might be in the business should they find it out, right? But that's not always what people are looking for. And there are some hypothesis-free tests, right? But these are what we call exploitative tests, right? So let's say I run a PPC campaign and I find out that this strap line is really good, right? That's a piece of knowledge I've acquired. I can then deploy that in a test and see if it works on the site. And lo and behold, I find out it does, right? That's an exploitative test. It's seeking to exploit a piece of knowledge I've acquired in order to get a result. It's a kind of optimization test. And there's lots of optimization type tests like that. And there are a few tests where almost all of the time when you test stuff like that, you will find the benefit. But it's a very small amount of things. The rest of the time, you have to figure out what your critical thinking is behind why you're running the experiment. right? Uh, and there are very few what I would call completely hypothesis-free tests, in my opinion. I think you also need the hypotheses just to be able to analyze the test, because this is what I see a lot, is that, you know, especially beginners, they don't write one, but they're like, we know what it is, and then they go analyze the test, and they just sort of forget what they were measuring for or what they were trying to, you know, and then it's whatever happened to work in the test then declares it a winner, which we all know is a problem. Psychological reasoning behind why it's written like that because it forces people to pick or think about or select things. So, one of the things it talks about in there is what is going to be your your key metric, right? I mean, it can be a metric or a series of metrics. This is what Ronnie Kahavi talks about when he talks about OEC overall experiment uh, cri- criterion evaluate. Sorry, overall evaluation criteria. Right? Is you'll have a primary metric typically. Right? You'll have a number of secondary metrics. So stuff. Some of those might be things you're just curious about, but some of them may also be a third category, which is called guardrail metrics. Things that 
even though you're running an experiment here on a different metric, you can't break these metrics, right? Because that would be really bad, right? So you have three classes, right? But what you're doing is you're forcing people because it's natural human bias, right? What I've seen happen all the time is people will run an experiment, they'll collect a whole bunch of metrics, and then what they'll do is they will torture the fucking data to make it say the thing that they wanted to happen, even though that's not what the experiment says at all. So the data will be tortured with hot irons until it squeals and says, yes, they were right. Yes, this is better. But you're just you're, you're just making flawed business decisions there. Nobody's really fooled by that. You're only kidding yourself. Yeah, I, that happens so often as well. Um, so... What I wanted to do, Craig, I've known you for over 10 years now, and I want to cast our mind back to one of the first conversations we had. And I think you were still working at Autoglass or the group level back then, or at least we were having a conversation around this. And you were talking about a test that, or an experiment that you were doing where you were using the, the same actor from TV on the landing pages. Um, do you, firstly, do you remember that? Because <laughs> I, I, I yeah. diversity actually at the end of the day. Because yeah, if we trace, but but a decade ago, yeah, yeah, which uh, and, and it, you know it's it, it's interesting because it, it shows you how things have changed both for them and how it changed minds, but it also shows you. Uh, but I'm, I still find things like this. It, essentially, a lot of the marketing, uh, the sales and marketing people had this assumption in their minds that it was only men who came to buy vehicle repair and replacement services, right? And they were ignoring two things there. A, the fact 5248, right? <laughs> and I'm not talking about Brexit. Uh, B, car ownership, right? All, all these data points, right? But also C, the fact that some men also made or asked wh whatever their partner go and book their glass appointment for their car, right? That was usually guys doing that, right? So there was this assumption that was kicking around within the business that what you needed to do was show manly pictures of stripped off men, like totally buff, right? In a workshop, like carrying big heavy pieces of glass, right? Or something really technical, like somebody gluing a windscreen crack, right? And I went through three years of experimenting with images. And I tried vans streaking along the road. I had some brilliant photography. I did this one of a van. I was totally convinced it would nail it and it would work, but they never worked. We tried lifestyle ones, mother and child in Autoglass office, you know, being served by friendly. No, it didn't work. And I kept wondering why, right? And the fundamental thing we found out, we did some copywriting levers. We got a UX researcher to go and talk to a lot of people who were right in that moment right now of having a crack, chip, or major re replacement needed on their glass on their cars. And we did deep interviews with them. And we found out they were shitting themselves about it. They were really scared about the whole thing because it's like terrifying, especially if you have kids and stuff, you know, it, you feel that the car is unsafe. And that's not actually true because the windscreen's bonded on, but people have an irrational fear of this causing harm to them and the people in the car. But the second thing we discovered was is that people don't want to be sold sexual imagery, right? Or hunky men, right? What they want, it's a distress purchase. You're really upset, you're distressed, 
your car, you can't get to your work, you can't pick your kids up, right? It's leaking water, you're unsafe, you're maybe in an unsafe place as a woman by the side of the road. All of these things came out of the research and I realized, no, that's not what they need, right? Showing to them, they need somebody who's going to say, it's okay, it's good, it's fine, we're going to make it all better, get it sorted out for you straight away, right? That's what they need, emotional connection and support in that moment of distress, right? And that's when I thought, you know, we need to experiment with more of these images. So I started experimenting with female imagery on the sites because it had all been guys were the glass repair technicians and, you know, it was guys on, you know, talking to them. It was guys looking at the car. It was just guys, 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 right? So I thought, let's try some female images see what happens, right? And they absolutely slayed all the male images over a couple of year period in all our major Western European markets. Almost every country, I think the exceptions were probably just poor photography, right? Uh, and not so female images were basically more popular than the men. But that's not surprising because some uh, what they what we found from testing the image psychologically was we we tested people with an oily rag, we tested them with a spanner right with a headset but one of the best that we found was like a clipboard right so they're like waiting with a, a pen and a clipboard and like that like i'm listening right so the head slightly cocked and we even tested different eye positions and the, the gaze looking at you and we found the most powerful one for this service type industry was a direct gaze so a single lone female not a group ready and waiting to listen to your problems and sort all your shit out looks like somebody normal and all of our models were staff members we never used professional models or and i tested stock photography too and that does not work photos of our employees always be ex expensive or cheap stock photography you know you can ask a photographer at your office to take photos of the staff and they will do a better job than spending money on stock photography, right? Just ask an amateur around your office. It's still better and it'll look more authentic like real people do. So then we tested these and people really didn't want to accept the result. They were like, no, no, we, we need to have, you know, workshops and shit. So I tested the workshops. I said, no, those don't work, right? They said, oh, we need to, maybe it's lifestyle. We test lifestyle. No, that doesn't work, right? Maybe it's, it's the images we're using of the guys. We need to use even more muscly guys. No, that doesn't work. Right. The nadir of this whole thing was talking to the Spanish marketing director. I had a 40-odd-year-old lady who looked like a Spanish mum, right? Just like, you know, a nice Spanish mum, really friendly lady, make you a cup of tea, sort it all out. We'll do it together. Sit down, my dear, you know, that sort of thing. And the marketing director said, but she's ugly. I would never use her anywhere, TV, print nothing why are you putting her on my website right and there were three other rafa nadal type guys up against her and i was like <laughs> i was confident right and i ran the test and she beat the closest one by 20 percent, right and it's just like shut up right then we had at that time in the uk we had a male guy right doing the adverts and there was a bit of trouble with him that's another story but at the same time as he was on TV, they hadn't told me TV was going to be running. But when they finally did tell me, I thought, oh, I could run an A-B test, right? 
while the TV's running, while the TV's not running. So what I'll do is I'll put this female image on the website and I'll put her up against the guy who's in the TV ad, right? Because, you know, it would be interesting to see if the guy and the guy combination works best, right? Because you would expect the TV advert to have an additive effect. No. Izzy, the woman who's on the site, beat him even when he was on TV doing the adverts. Wow. Really interesting that, right? So when I went back to them with this data, they were like, holy hell, right? And then they said, we know what we're going to do. We're going to put Izzy in the TV advert. And I was like, oh man, that is brilliant, right? So the TV adverts ran with her. They were, went absolutely gangbusters, right? But here was the next, uh, the best thing of all that happened down to that. They were all like, oh, they've done so well and made so much money off of it. But the thing that made me happiest of all was I got a call a few weeks after, rang up and said, it's really weird, Craig. We never guess what happened. We've been absolutely flooded by applications of women wanting to become autoglass technicians. Yes. <laughs> So not only did it, I'm so glad you remembered that story because so I, I remembered like 70% of it back from and that 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 whole story you presented probably the first half of it when I first met you at an e-consultancy event over a decade ago and then I saw you present the updated version after now you, you'd completed now the you test. Know, know what happened Funny, I was looking at a, mm. uh, a friend of mine who's going for a job at a company. Here's a good tip, right? You want to look at somebody's experimentation history, pick a few pages on their website you'd expect them to run experiments on, and have a look in the internet wayback machine, right? So there was this company that was hoping to join. So I went and looked at some of their major country websites, picked a page, and looked back in time, like three years, right? And the only thing that they tweaked was like the button copy. And the, the headline on like the homepage, like, are you serious, right? So there was uh, literally they had changed a few bits of text in a button in three years. And I said, no, man, you don't want to go and work for that place, right? The experimentation <laughs> looks terrible, right? Unless you're getting the job of going in and destroying it, nuking it, and restarting the whole thing, don't take the job, right? way back machine. <laughs> One of your questions must That's be, why aren't people doing enough testing? We touched on that. And the answer is that they can't scale. There's some limit, right? There's a headroom, right? You know, either it's resource, it's organizational, it's political. The process is too manual, too labor intensive. You know, it's leadership culture. There are all these limiting factors that stop experimentation from growing, right? Because once you start it, you're thinking, this is a much better way of figuring things out than the old way of doing things, right? So how do you do more of it? And people try and scale it without optimizing the flywheel of the repeatable bit of work that you're always doing. So if you're running a test in 2022, January 2022, and in January 2023, it's taking you exactly the same amount of time to build and run a test a year later, then you've failed, right? Because you've not made it any faster, right? So you will never scale. It's a self-limiting thing. Unless you optimize that central repeatable process, you're never going to get any quicker at it unless you throw more resource at it. And that in itself could be a problem. You just got to automate the hell out of it, right? Remove all the human and yeah. resource cost from running an experiment and, and make it leaner every cycle, you know? 
the same loops. Yeah, I just had a... It's an interesting question, though, because I have a lot of experimenters asking me this. Because I always tell them, you need to not just optimize the site, you need to optimize your yep, experimentation that's right. program. That's kind of what I tell them. And then, how do we do that? That's always the biggie, right? I mean, I say automation, but is it? there are so many ways you can do that. But I think people forget that when they're constantly optimizing something, that they're limiting themselves. And it's something really important. I'm really happy you brought it up because scaling a program is what holds most people back. Yeah, and it, and it is usually an automation thing. There's just too much time is wasted. You know, it can be wasted either in the, the design of the experiment. It can be wasted in launching and running the experiment. It can be wasted in the analysis. That's a very common place. You know, people spend three weeks arguing about whether the test won or not, right? Whereas it should be predefined and pre-registered. Literally, I wrote an article once in the Tom Hanks film, Big, there's a fortune telling machine called Zoltar, right? And it spits out these cards and tells your fortune. And I love them. There are still some Zoltar machines around, which is uh, wonderful. But my imagination of an A-B testing tool is it only ever spits out a limited number of cards. It says, we got the sample, the new one is one. We got the sample, you keep the old one on, right? You haven't got enough sample, right? The, the test is inconclusive. Or it's losing you loads of money. Do you want to switch it off? And those are all the only five things that you want when you press a button on a test thing. Tell me what decision to make. That should be what it tells you, right? So, you know, I, I think the problem is, is people end up getting into excessive noodling over test results rather than saying, putting the, what they should be thinking is, is they spend all this time in post-mortem thinking, why did we waste our time running that experiment? What they should be do, doing is running a pre-mortem to think what will happen if the experiment goes wrong? What happens if it doesn't go the way that we expect? What are we going to do, right? So you're trying to explore the possible future there before you arrive at it, which I think is important. Which ties back together with the hypotheses, doesn't mm. it? Because without that, you can't do anything. And it, you can't, if you have a good hypothesis and you know what you're measuring for, it's easy to stop. Or but it's not, not, it's not just the, uh, the, um, the hypothesis as well. One of the... One of the big problems is is that a lot of people doing testing think that what they're doing is they're using a tool as a traffic or audience splitter to collect some data that people will make decisions on. Wrong, right? You're actually running experiments, right? Which is a different thing, right? So if we were all allowed to go out and test drugs on people in old folks' homes, right? What do you think would happen? Right? Old people would die, right? Because people would do really stupid things with the experiments they design and try random drugs on people that would cause them harm, right? That's why we don't let uh, just average people do drug testing on old people, right? Because of those kind of risks. But we also have the same risks of harm to your company, right? It's not an individual, but there are these risks inherent in running experiments that you could make faulty decisions that pollute the company DNA. So you believe, oh, fluffy kittens won over cute puppy dogs. So we're going to go gangbusters on fluffy kittens for the next year, right? But you've just doubled down on the thing that was a failure in the test. It's just that your test setup was flawed, right? So well, on this that, is unscientific right, before, testing, before, yeah. you know, and people need to understand that. So in a pure play A-B scenario where you are testing two quite distinctly different options, and let's just use the, the dogs and cats argument here, and the audience in your segmentation, 60% prefer dogs, 40% prefer cats, 
And therefore, quite often, the output of that test is dogs are better than cats. But actually, 40% of your audience prefer cats. So if you double down on the dogs, you're not necessarily getting a better conversion rate as a whole. Yeah, and so that's why people do... Where, and how do you manage that people process? Often do, how do you manage that process with an organization? People skip this a lot because they're like, oh, I can't be bothered to deal with that. So we just target people on X device, right? And and, and kind of do it, do it that way. That's one way of sorting out. The second problem is, is that you must realize that if you are targeting a multi-device setup in a responsive world, you don't just have a mobile experience and a desktop experience. Your design has multiple breakpoints and the audience has multiple viewports and how those map onto your design breakpoints is unique for everybody, right? So there isn't a mobile screen you can look at and think, oh, that's what they're seeing, right? So unbeknownst to you, so if you're running experiments and you're not segmenting the data because there's a, a demonstrable difference in the experiences that you're serving up, then you won't be able to detect those segment level drivers of the experiments. The same thing with data analysis. If you just say, oh, all customers convert more because of this. Yeah, but was it mobile or desktop? Don't know. We didn't look at the data, right? Well, you don't know what the underlying drivers of the averages that you're seeing. So the metric that you've shifted, understanding those drivers is really important, especially if you have a cross-device experiment. And people fudge that and, and say, oh, we'll just do it on mobile. But even then, you've got iPhone sizes all the way from 5.4 up to 6.7 inches. Do you think your design might look different on those? Have you looked, right? If the answer is no, then probably it might it might be different. We just don't know. But yeah, I think the um, the thing is is that I, I the one analogy I use here is Ferrari race cars, right? Let's say you own Ferrari, right? Those cars are really expensive going around the track, right? If you think of those as your product teams, right? A product team might cost an experimentation product team might be costing you a million to a million and a half a year. To run right that's a lot that's like a ferrari race car right so the performance of those vehicles is paramount to you right you need to know things that you change what impact that they're having and that's why the cars are packed with telemetry and data collection right because without that you can't make good decisions about it. was that good did the tires work what about the injector oh it sort of feels better right? <laughs> it feels good. Let's do it. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, that's not the way that they work, right? So the problem is, is that most people just don't know the risks or the potential for polluting the company DNA with faulty knowledge because they don't know about the statistics, right? And stats is just generally a big problem. So people are thinking, oh, it's really easy. You get a WYSIWYG editor, you put these two things on there, and then you ignore years and years of statistical evidence and information that shows that you shouldn't be doing what you're doing so i'll get people to say oh we we started testing on our website yeah but it wasn't working after like 12 hours so we switched it off and it's just like it would be like if we gave lightsabers to everyone on the planet what do you think would happen loads millions of people would end up in hospital right with sliced off limbs right and the kind of ab testing is a bit like that we've given it to everybody and some people have been responsible with it but some people have just sliced off their own limbs and terrible acts of self-harm right 
Craig just wants so then to be with a all Jedi. This kind of going wrong. <laughs> that's that's the outcome of this. Is Craig just wants to be known Make as a, a good Jedi. Jedi? So what's it's, missing? Uh, that's what this all rolls up Ron, to. Ron, 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 uh, yeah, Ron, but then yeah, Craig, go ahead. Oh wait, sorry, Craig. Um, <laughs> how? Just in closing, I would love to know one thing. I'm sure Russell wants to know this too. What's the biggest thing that needs to get unfucked in testing? Then so many. I think I think it's governance essentially because a lot of the companies that I'm dealing with have got large experimentation programs that they've invested a lot of money and effort into. But the problem is is that they're missing what you know scientists and people in the medical and scientific communities publish their stuff, right? They expose it to the scrutiny of their peers. They let people kick the tires. They let people call them out. They have arguments about it, but science gets better as a result. Most experimentation done in companies is is almost never shared externally, or uh, and they almost never get someone to come in and kick the tires of how they're running a program. And that's what me and Lucas have been doing recently is experimentation reviews for companies, come in, have a look over all their stuff, try and figure out what's wrong and provide that external and objective sort of perspective, right? Because in a lot of cases, these companies are trying to run scientific experimentation programs, but they're not checking actually if anyone who knows how to do it has looked over their shoulder and says, yeah, you're doing it right. No, you're not. And you need to change these things. So I think that's the thing that I would encourage people to do is invite more scrutiny of their work, more transparency, more scrutiny, the ethics of experimentation will improve, but also the practice of experimentation will improve. Amen. Awesome. Where, yeah, where can people find you online, Craig? Uh, optimize or Die on Twitter. You can find I write a lot about experimentation stuff or, on LinkedIn, so you can get in touch with me there. And I write about UX stuff as well, but that's for another day. <laughs> that's something else is broken. Awesome. Product quality is broken as well as experimentation quality. <laughs> anyway, not time. But everything's fucked, Craig. That's the whole point. Everything's for broken, right? Which is why I exist, right? That's what I'm there to do. I'm the janitor. I'm just. I'm still sweeping. Twenty years later, I'm just going around and sweeping up the piles, right? <laughs> 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 we'll have plenty to talk Take about Take care. This Catch way. you later. Great. Thank you okay, so much for coming on. Okay, good to meet you on. both and have a wonderful evening. Bye. Bye, Ross. Cheers, Craig. Bye. You Bye. too.